High schoolers are busy, but no one's too busy to help fight cancer. The Leukemia and Lymphoma Society is looking for their next student visionaries of the year. Could that be your child? High schoolers who participate in this seven-week philanthropic leadership development program gain valuable life skills like project management, communication, financial literacy, and entrepreneurship. Forming strong teams behind them, they fundraise for the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society in honor of a pediatric blood cancer survivor right in their local community. Most importantly, this campaign is an opportunity for high schoolers to engage in meaningful work within their community and make a real impact on the lives of blood cancer patients and their families. Sound like something your child might be interested in? You can learn more about Student Visionaries of the Year or even nominate a student at lls.org students. That's lls.org slash students. Let Tend Dental make your dream smile a reality. We offer a variety of top-rated treatments, including Invisalign aligners. And for a limited time, Tend is offering $750 off orthodontic treatments. Offer valid through January 31st, so don't wait. Visit hellotend.com slash sale. That's hellotend.com slash sale. And book your free consult today. Welcome to a new season of You Must Remember This, the podcast dedicated to exploring the secret and or forgotten histories of Hollywood's first century. This season, we're taking a sensual journey into a not-too-distant past. This is Erotic 80s. I'm getting a little fed up at sexually emancipated ladies being referred to as broads. I'm not doing this because somebody's making me do it. You're a strange girl being a naughty boy. Last year, he was discovered making amateur videos of his own sex robbers. Over the next 12 episodes, we're going to explore how Hollywood dealt with sex in movies made between 1979 and 1989. Then we're going to take a brief hiatus and come back later in the year with another dozen or so episodes called Erotic 90s. Starting next week, each episode will focus on a single year and one or a handful of films, stars, or filmmakers who had a moment that year that's important to the overall picture. We're going to talk about movies made by Paul Schrader, Brian De Palma, Amy Heckerling, and Adrian Lyne, and movie stars like Richard Gere, Glenn Close, Rob Lowe, Sean Young, and more. But in some ways, our story starts in the 1960s. Terry Southern, who co-scripted Stanley Kubrick's 1964 film, Dr. Strangelove, used to tell a story about a night from around that time when the two were at a party and somebody put on a hardcore porn film. Southern recalled that Kubrick was moved by the film to muse aloud on a near future in which explicit sex could be integrated into mainstream conventional Hollywood narratives. Wouldn't it be interesting, Kubrick said, if one day someone who was an artist would do that, using really beautiful actors and good equipment. Sometime in the next couple of years, Southern tried to convince Kubrick that the future was now. 
that with the production code that regulated sexual content in movies dying a slow death, they could and should make a movie with beautiful actors and good equipment and real sex. Kubrick ultimately demurred. Most accounts have him putting the onus on his wife, Christiane, who supposedly said she'd leave him if he tried such a thing. And Southern instead published a novel in 1970 called Blue Movie, which brought to life the pornofied future of Hollywood that he and Kubrick had imagined, while skewering the hypocrisy and peccadilloes of an industry run by men who know it's not in their best interest to portray the depravity of their actual sex lives on screen. And Kubrick instead made A Clockwork Orange, which goes about as far as a film could go in exploring sexual depravity without including actual hardcore sex. The future Kubrick mused about in 1964 never fully came to fruition. Though some narrative films containing real sex would make it to theaters, these were largely European, and Hollywood never officially went there. By 1999, when Kubrick was forced to obscure simulated orgy scenes in his last movie, Eyes Wide Shut, the extra-wide semi-truck of culture had begun the slow process of doing a 180. Eyes Wide Shut was probably the last mainstream Hollywood film about sex of the millennium. And the first 22 years of the 21st century haven't brought many more. Why has sex of any kind all but disappeared as a subject of Hollywood movies, during a period when the wider culture's response to human sexuality has only become more varied and by turns more inclusive, more volatile, and more complicated? My curiosity about that is one reason why I wanted to travel back to the last two decades of the 20th century, the last time that the American entertainment industry seemed to believe that sex could be both a subject of serious art and a safe bet for making money. What I found there was a much more complicated landscape than I had realized. On a broad scale, this season is about sex in Hollywood movies in the 20 years leading up to Eyes Wide Shut. This was a time when filmmakers and studios were testing what and how much they could get away with within a new rating system and with a moral and commercial marketplace that had been changed by pornography, but also was charged by a number of repressive forces, including Reagan-era conservatism, and anti-porn, anti-sex work feminism. Forces which should have been ideologically opposed, but sometimes seem to be working to the same ends. Another place I thought about beginning this season is with a single shot from a single movie from 1993, Adrian Lyne's Indecent Proposal. In the middle of that movie, Lyne cuts to a receptionist in an office reading a copy of a book that was a bestseller two years earlier, Backlash, The Undeclared War Against American Women, in which author Susan Faludi raises the alarm that an American culture in which feminism has become unfashionable is in danger of erasing the gains of the previous 25 years. Faludi argues persuasively that the objectives of the women's movement of the 60s and 70s weren't even close to being fully achieved before the patriarchal forces that still ran the culture began to roll women's rights back. In one chapter, Faludi takes Lyon's previous blockbuster Fatal Attraction to task for its depiction of a murderously unhappy career woman. The image of Faludi's book in Indecent Proposal is so brief that it qualifies as an Easter egg. And yet, I remember that shot being hugely controversial, sparking debate as to whether it was good or bad that Line playfully tipped his cap to Faludi in a movie about the consequences of a woman selling her body to a very high bidder. 
Indecent Proposal, which we'll talk about more in the second half of this season, is a prime example of the kind of movie produced during this period. A movie which feels like an artifact of a culture that was not just undergoing a feminist backlash, but suffering full-on whiplash at the end of a century and three or four decades in particular of unfathomable change. This climate resulted in movies which could seem at once liberating for women and exploitative, transgressive and regressive, critical of the male gaze and totally indulgent of it. Movies about which there is a lot to say. If this season is mostly about the last two decades of the 20th century, then it's also about the first two decades of my life. The fact is, sex was in popular culture when I was a kid in a way that it just isn't anymore. The commodification of bodies on Instagram and HBO shows for and about adolescent sex notwithstanding. When I was a kid and a teen in the 80s and 90s, it felt like there was a world of content out there that was taboo, that there was a door closed to me that would open up at some point in the future, and which I couldn't resist cracking open and peeking through at any opportunity. Now, as a 40-something, I can look back on that era and see that I wasn't entirely wrong. There was a kind of movie being made in the 80s and 90s that isn't being made in Hollywood anymore. A type of movie that made sex feel too complicated or too dangerous for a child to understand. A lot of those movies are part of a micro-genre that we call erotic thrillers. But not all of the movies I'm interested in qualify as thrillers. And truthfully, even if they're about sex, not all of them are all that erotic. They're movies of multiple genres that take sex seriously. Maybe even too seriously. I feel nostalgia for these movies in some cases, and a lot of them have a lot to recommend them. But they can also be extremely problematic to a contemporary gaze. Most of the films that we're going to talk about would not be made today. And even if they were, they would probably be Twitter-canceled by people who hadn't even seen them. I must note from the outset that the vast majority of the movies that we're going to discuss are primarily about the sex lives of straight white people. Let me explain why. Even as they span 20 years and multiple micro-genres, all of the movies up for discussion this season constitute variations on the same couple of themes. One of those themes is the fundamental push and pull between the erotic and the thrilling. Linda Williams, the foremost historian of sex on film, has written about how, during the production code era when kisses had to stand in for every conceivable sexual act, the movie kisses that became the most legendary tended to pair romance with danger. In her book, Screening Sex, Williams cites a 1992 Gallup poll in which respondents voted for the sexiest screen kisses of all time. And the winners were Rick and Ilsa kissing as Paris is seized by Nazis in Casablanca, Burt Lancaster and Deborah Carr rolling around on the beach pre-Pearl Harbor in From Here to Eternity, and Clark Gable kissing Vivian Lee in the Civil War set Gone with the Wind. All of these kisses get an extra charge, as Williams puts it, from internal conflicts between illicit sexual desires and the demands of war. In other words, they not only dramatize the idea that sexual desire is a common response to potentially imminent death, but they use the idea of danger to add excitement to the limited visual possibilities of filmed sex under the production code. In the 1980s, while new censorship regulations altered the possibilities of what could be shown on screen, Hollywood still seemed to locate most eroticism in danger. 
The movies that we're going to focus on take the connection between sex and death and change it from something smuggled in as an interlude or as a subtext and transform it into the subject of the movie. When given the opportunity to greatly expand its depictions of types of sexual relationships and situations, Hollywood doubled down on the equation between sex and danger, or even death. Some of that had to do with the AIDS crisis, but we're going to be talking about a lot of movies made before Hollywood acknowledged that crisis, and many more that played on the idea that sex is dangerous from a timeless moral perspective and not a timely clinical one. The other major theme that ties many of these films together is money and the role it plays in either the power dynamics that govern sex or its ability to serve as a substitute for sex, a fetish object. If some sense of danger or prohibition seems to be all but obligatory to Hollywood sex in the 80s and 90s, something that seems to be almost as intertwined as anxiety about class and consumerism. There are movie sex scenes of the 80s and 90s that don't seem designed to make you want to buy things. A certain scene between Richard Gere and Deborah Winger in An Officer and a Gentleman comes to mind, in which there's nothing in the frame of the scene or in the larger narrative of the movie for the viewer to covet, other than the actually naked bodies of these very attractive actors. But a lot of the movies that we're going to discuss in this season make literal or liminal connections between sex and wealth, often tying virility to success in the workplace or demonstrable buying power, or suggesting that conspicuous consumption could offer the same pleasure and release as an orgasm. Maybe more in a world in which sex can kill you. You don't have to watch many of these movies back to back before you start to ask yourself, are movies that are supposedly about sex really about money? If it's a universal truth that the sex drive is tied to the death drive in contrast to or in concert with the biological imperative to procreate, then in Hollywood movies of a certain period, the sex drive seems almost indivisible from the American imperative to create wealth. And wrapped into this, as we'll see in several episodes, are questions about who should be making money. The movies almost always tell us the answer to that question is white men. And that the financial independence of any woman can be twisted to look like a sexual threat. And in a way, if all or most of these movies ostensibly about sex are really about risk and capitalism, then it's not coincidental that they are also, and almost necessarily within the context of 20th century Hollywood, about straightness and whiteness. In the same text I quoted a minute ago, Historian Linda Williams writes about how actresses in classic films are lit in the shots in which they are waiting to be kissed. Quote, All white women in Hollywood films glow with a light that works to purify the darker lusts their kisses may evoke. For everything that had changed in Hollywood movies by 1979, the dichotomy that the movies had operated under during the code which prohibited interracial couplings and thus equated whiteness with sexual purity hadn't changed that much. These movies are largely about deviations from quote-unquote normal sex. They're about being bad. And they are still 20th century Hollywood movies. And so for every deviation, there must be a control. And the control is straightness and whiteness. Suffice it to say, in a world in which whiteness and straightness is projected as the norm, too often queerness or non-whiteness become a kind of boogeyman. And that will definitely be a topic of conversation of this season. This era of movies was made possible by the creation of the rating system, which supplanted the archaic production code in 1968. 
Though the initial system included an X rating as a commercial designation for adult content, it took a while for Hollywood filmmaking to adjust and fully take advantage of the new rules. I think of today's episode as a kind of prologue, in which I'll talk a bit about why the MPAA created the new rating system and how the culture ebbed and flowed between 1968 and 1979, where this season will begin in earnest next week. The party where Kubrick and Southern watched that porn film anticipated a trend of the following decade, which the New York Times dubbed porno chic. In 1972, suddenly you had to see a film like Deep Throat if you wanted to keep up with the cultural conversation. A few months after Deep Throat became the first hardcore blockbuster, came the debut of a film which seemed to make good on Kubrick's speculation about what would happen if an artist would use really beautiful actors and good equipment to make a film structured around sex scenes. That movie was Bernardo Bertolucci's last tango in Paris. And together with Deep Throat, it legitimized the idea of the X-rated box office smash slash cultural phenomenon. For a moment, it looked like Hollywood might undergo a true sexual maturation. But porno chic would turn out to be incredibly short-lived. Today, we'll talk about how it happened, why it died, and why these films are linked by more than just their release dates and ratings. So join us, won't you, for part one of Erotic 80s. Knowing how to speak and understand a new language can be an invaluable tool when traveling, meeting new friends, or just even to master a new skill. But it's not always simple when you're bogged down by textbooks and structure classes. That's why so many people trust Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program, available on desktop or as an app. It truly immerses you in the language you want to learn, like Spanish, French, Italian, Chinese, and more. You won't just be studying English translations. The Rosetta Stone intuitive process helps you pick up a language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com rs10. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com rs10 today. Hi, I'm Una Chaplin, and I'm the host of a new podcast called Hollywood Exiles. It tells the story of how my grandfather, Charlie Chaplin, and many others were caught up in a campaign to root out communism in Hollywood. It's a story of glamour and scandal and political intrigue and a battle for the soul of a nation. Hollywood Exiles from CBC Podcasts and the BBC World Service. Find it wherever you get your podcasts. Before Hollywood began showing sex more graphically, it began sneaking in more direct conversation about sex. In our Gossip Girls series, I talked about the Otto Preminger movie The Moon is Blue, a very tame sex comedy which was marketed as a scandal because it featured a young woman discussing her own virginity. That was made in 1953, the same year that the kiss in the sand between Deborah Carr and Burt Lancaster in From Here to Eternity pushed the envelope visually. In that climate, only The Moon is Blue was considered too racy for a production code seal of approval. And the fact that it was released anyway and was successful helped to show studios that the code had outlived its commercial usefulness. That year ended, not incidentally, with the debut of Playboy, which featured nude photos of movie star Marilyn Monroe. Anyone could now go to a newsstand and purchase naked photos of a major celebrity. How would movies respond? Very slowly. It took another 15 years for the code to fully die and to be replaced by the MPAA's rating system, which initially consisted of G, M, soon to be changed to PG, R, and X. 
X was not designed to designate hardcore pornography. Jack Valenti, who ran the MPAA and served as the figurehead for the rating system for decades, said the new ratings were intended, quote, to free the filmmaker, to loosen the artistic fetters around his ankles. And yet, even after Brian De Palma's greetings broke the seal in becoming the first film to be rated X, few filmmakers dove even ankle deep into this new world. An interesting example is Bob and Carol and Ted and Alice, a movie made in 1969 about middle-class couples feeling pressure to liberate themselves sexually, which largely features those couples talking about the new sexual order, endlessly, rather than acting it out. It's a movie that displays more than one naked female body before the opening credits roll, but that display of casual nudity is a red herring for a film that's ultimately about how difficult sexual liberation can be in which an attempt at husband-swapping fizzles out, awkwardly and sadly, thereby restoring order to two marriages in chaos. This is emblematic of how Hollywood movies can have it both ways. They can dance right up to the edge of normalizing transgressive sexual practices, and then shrink away from that edge, just in time. They can seem hip by acknowledging the sexual revolution, without actually endorsing it and essentially reaffirming traditional family values. The same year that Bob and Carol and Ted and Alice was released, a commercial theater in New York City ran a documentary called Pornography in Denmark. The documentary classification did a lot of work, but this was a film showing real, unsimulated sex that was functionally the same as pornography. And yet, the local censors let the film screen without incident, without pressing charges on the theater or shutting it down. John Waters would later call the New York City run of pornography in Denmark the day porn films became legal. This is not entirely accurate because a fair number of the earliest films exhibited commercially in Nickelodeon's featured naked women bathing or exercising and could be described as pornographic. But it's true that films depicting unsimulated sexual acts were chiefly underground until the 1960s. To see them, you'd have to go to a place like a brothel, a red light district theater, or to a private party where the host had acquired a print and the equipment to project it. If Kubrick and Southern had their party experience where they began talking about the integration of real sex into mainstream narrative cinema in 1964, that was just before something like that began to come to fruition in European cinema. The most notable example is I Am Curious Yellow, a Swedish quasi-documentary which featured both male and female frontal nudity and images that it was impossible to simulate, including one shot in which actress Lena Nyman kisses a non-erect penis. Produced in 1967, I Am Curious Yellow was released in the U.S. in 1969 and became a massive box office hit. It was number one at the U.S. box office for two weeks in November and ended the year as the 12th highest grossing film overall. An immense achievement for a non-English language film, although it should be noted that the X-rated Midnight Cowboy was an even bigger hit that year. If 1969 was the year X-rated films went mainstream via I Am Curious Yellow and Midnight Cowboy, the idea that culture was taking a major turn towards sexual permissiveness had been swelling for several years. Many women's lives and sexual relationships were fundamentally altered by the availability of birth control pills, which were introduced at the beginning of that decade. Linda Williams, a baby boomer, writes that for many women of her generation, sexual liberation was wrapped up in political awakening. She writes about moving in with a boyfriend in 1967, at which point her own mother lamented that she was a fallen woman. Williams writes that by 1973, the year Roe v. Wade legalized abortion nationwide, cohabitating out of wedlock had become mainstream, in part because of the anti-war movement 
the slogan, Make Love, Not War, allowed young people to couch their sexual activity as a kind of protest. But just as not every young person opposed the war, changes in family planning possibilities didn't provide immediate equality between the sexes and didn't alter every woman's relationship with every man. Many women remained subjugated to their male partners, or their fathers, to varying degrees of satisfaction or complacency. It was sort of like a corset. For some women, the corset got a little looser with the pill and a little bit looser still with Roe versus Wade. But a lot of women were still wearing the corset. While women were allowed or even expected by 1970 to be more sexually open, active, and available, very little had changed about the way society was structured in order to give women, sexually active or otherwise, any real increase in freedom. And some women, for their own reasons, didn't see family planning as a liberating option for them. The more some people changed, the more others doubled down on tradition. In a media landscape that hadn't yet been nicheified, when studios still expected to reach everyone with almost everything, Hollywood couldn't go all in on sexuality. A lot of their customers didn't want them to. This is one reason the mainstream success of Deep Throat was such a shock. This hardcore feature film, differing from previous feature-length pornos only in the absurdity of its high concept, became the seventh highest grossing film of 1972. Not the seventh highest grossing adult film. It was number seven in a ranked list that featured The Godfather at number one, and also included What's Up Doc and Cabaret. Deep Throat grossed more than The Getaway and The Heartbreak Kid, more than movies directed by Alfred Hitchcock and John Huston. Hollywood had used the idea of sex to sell their movies before, but Deep Throat was the first example of an American film using actual filmed sex to drive millions of dollars worth of movie ticket sales. Deep Throat tells the story of a woman who cannot achieve orgasm. She ultimately goes to a doctor who makes a miraculous discovery. This girl has a clitoris in her throat. Thus, the only way to get her off is to gag her with a penis. Even in this male fantasy scenario, in the early 1970s, the idea of a man looking for a clitoris in order to give a woman pleasure was still fairly new. Sex researchers Masters and Johnson began collecting scientific evidence that the clitoris was the primary organ of orgasm for most women in the late 1950s. But their research did not hit the mainstream into the publication of their book, Human Sexual Response, in 1966. The book became a bestseller and the subject of much controversy, which Masters, the male half of the research duo, only stoked by insisting that if a woman could not come with her partner, it wasn't her fault. There's no such thing as a totally non-orgasmic woman, Masters said, adding, she may be non-orgasmic in her current marriage with her current mate, but this proves absolutely nothing. Because Masters was chiefly referring to women with male sexual partners, this was equivalent to an absolutely radical suggestion that the problem with frigid women was not the women, but men. That was enough to put a hairline crack in the ceiling of the patriarchy circa 1966. But the circumstances of how Deep Throat was made are testament to just how little had changed for many women in terms of their subjugation to men. Early in the movie, Linda Lovelace, who is credited with playing herself, complains to a girlfriend that she doesn't feel as much pleasure from sex as she thinks she should. She says there should be bells ringing, dams bursting, bombs going off, something. 
Her friend tells her she's probably doing it wrong. Linda wonders how many ways there are to do it. The film proceeds to show Linda trying out a few ways before her doctor makes his great anatomical discovery. Listen, having a clitoris deep down in the bottom of your throat is better than having no clitoris at all. It's easy for you to say. Suppose your balls were in your ear. But then I could hear myself coming. Oh, Miss Collins. Listen, we have the problem solved. All we have to do now is find a solution. Like what? Like, like deep throat. Deep what? Throat. Have you ever taken a penis all the way down to the bottom of your throat? No. I try, but I choke. Oh, well, now, and here it's a matter of discipline. You have to learn to relax the muscles. You have to regulate your breathing to the movement of your head. You make it sound so easy. Well, it is. Try it. You'll like it. So she does try it, and we're meant to believe she does like it. We don't see her orgasm, but we don't actually see him orgasm either. Instead, director Gerard Damiano offers a near-avant-garde montage, intercutting between images of Harry Reams' penis in Linda's mouth and images that suggest her desire for bells ringing and bombs bursting has been satisfied. Literally, we see a bell being rung, fireworks exploding in the sky, and a rocket taking off. No one paid much attention to Deep Throat at first when it opened in a few cities around the country at porno theaters and did what sexploitation producer David Friedman described as very ordinary business, nothing spectacular. But then the mayor of New York launched a PR campaign to show he was cleaning up Times Square. And as a publicity stunt, he shut down the World Theater where Deep Throat was doing its local, ordinary business. This ultimately led to an obscenity trial in 1973. But before that, it turned Deep Throat into a must-see for those wanting to know what all the fuss was about. Deep Throat was mentioned by name in all of the newspaper headlines about this nationwide, which gave rise to national curiosity. Suddenly, Deep Throat went from playing in a few theaters scattered over the country to playing in 300 theaters nationwide. Film critics were obligated to review it, and though most of those reviews were scathing, the column inches legitimized the movie and gave it free advertising. And then the owner of the World Theater got an injunction that allowed him to reopen the film despite ongoing prosecution. When Deep Throat reopened in Times Square, after all that publicity about it getting shut down, there were lines around the block to see this so-called forbidden film. Going to see Deep Throat became something people of all professions, ages, income levels, and walks of life felt they had or wanted to do in order to be part of a conversation. Linda Williams recalled that when she and a group of friends went to see Deep Throat, on the long drive back to the suburbs, they talked about how the film had made them feel. Some of us were disgusted, Williams wrote. Some of us admitted to being turned on. Williams and her friends were hardly mavericks or outliers, as the box office attests. In January 1973, the New York Times ran an article about the Deep Throat phenomenon in which author Ralph Blumenthal coined the term porno chic to describe what was luring not just middle-class couples and giggling academics, but also celebrities with as diverse claims to cool as Jack Nicholson and Truman Capote, Johnny Carson and Sandy Dennis. Not every celebrity who saw Deep Throat saw it as a cool, fun night at the movies. Nora Ephron said that while she had seen a few other porn films that she felt were sweet and innocent and actually erotic, Deep Throat, on the other hand, is one of the most unpleasant, disturbing films I have ever seen. 
It's not just anti-female, but anti-sexual as well. Controversy aside, one thing that made Deep Throat such a big moneymaker was that theater operators in New York wisely realized that if they charged more for it than for the average skin flick, it would seem like a premium offering and would attract a premium audience. It was a tactic subsequently adopted by a very different X-rated film. When Last Tango in Paris opened in regular movie theaters in New York in February 1973, four months after its bombshell premiere at the New York Film Festival, and a month after the porno chic article in the New York Times, cinemas charged $5 per ticket, the same elevated price that viewers were paying to see Deep Throat in Times Square. This was a $2 markup on the typical movie ticket price. Last Tango in Paris and Deep Throat literally came from two different worlds. And yet, together, they came to define a moment when it looked like the X rating could go mainstream. I walked out of the screening and said to myself, how dare I make another movie? What it has done is give me a 20-year jump in my career. The level of honesty it achieved was fantastic. Not the sexuality, but the emotional honesty. My personal and artistic life will never be the same. That is a quote from Robert Altman, and he's talking about how he felt after his first viewing of Last Tango in Paris. Most accounts of this movie and the impact it had Cite Pauline Kael, who wrote a rapturous review out of the New York Film Festival, which compared Bernardo Bertolucci's movie to Stravinsky's modern ballet, The Rite of Spring. But when I came across this quote from Altman, I wanted to highlight it because it speaks to the direct influence this movie had on a contemporary filmmaker, a filmmaker who we think of as a maverick who did whatever he wanted to do anyway. For Altman to say that last tango gave him a certain kind of artistic permission, feels significant. We've talked about this film before, a long time ago in our episode on Marlon Brando in 1972 to 1973, a period that saw the release of The Godfather as well as Bertolucci's movie. Brando's casting is crucial to Last Tango's impact. Bertolucci uses him as an icon of the last generation of Hollywood as a raw material for revolutionary art designed to puncture sexual taboos of polite society. Kale attributed much of the audience's reaction to the sex scenes to, quote, our awareness that this was Marlon Brando doing it and not an unknown actor, as was presumed to be the case with pornography to that point. As interesting as that is, today I'm not going to talk much about Brando. Instead, I want to talk about Last Tango specifically in the context of how it and Deep Throat are flip sides of the same coin, which seem to herald a bold new future. I want to talk about why they were such a big deal in their moment. And this does bring us back to Kale, because as much as it's easy to make fun of her hyperbole, there is something to her conflation of Bertolucci's movie with Stravinsky's ballet, which turned Paris upside down in 1913 and was alternatingly and simultaneously mocked and celebrated for its vulgarity and for elevating both the pagan and the avant-garde. In that sense, it mirrored what had been happening in painting for roughly 50 years. Artists like Manet and Van Gogh and Gauguin defied convention not just in painting style but in subject matter painting subjects like farm workers or sex workers, and in the case of Gauguin specifically, using painting to document his psychosexual odysseys and expose the European fine art world to his even then problematic interest in quote-unquote primitive sexuality. By the time Rite of Spring premiered in 1913, the modern art scene had been further rocked by Freudian ideas about sex and dreams, which would influence Dada and surrealism. These modernizations in both style and substance would seep into literature too by the 19-teens. 
But movies didn't have this awakening. Or to the extent that the seeds for it were planted, they weren't able to flourish. First, because of the increased commercialization surrounding the formation of the studio system and the industrial transition to sound, and then because of the production code. So when Kale compares Last Tango to Rite of Spring, she's talking about its ability to shake its audience up, but she's also talking about its potential to touch off a much belated modern era in American movies, akin to the modern era's experience long before in ballet, music, theater, and visual art. Like many of the movies from the 80s and 90s that we're going to discuss this season, Last Tango is as much a movie about death as it is about sex. Bertolucci titled his first draft of the screenplay La Petite Mort, which literally translates to the little death and was an old French euphemism for orgasm. Brando's character Paul has so recently lost his wife to suicide that her corpse has not yet been buried and still lies in the hotel which she owned and in which he still lives, now as the guest of a ghost. As if to reverse that dynamic, he dominates a young stranger, Jean, played by Maria Schneider, in a vacant apartment to which neither of them can claim ownership. In the end, when forced to choose between a safe bourgeois marriage to a boyfriend she seems to hate, played by Jean-Pierre Liot, and a life of sexual risk with Paul, Jean shoots her lover and claims self-defense, denying that she ever knew this man at all. As much as Last Tango in Paris violated norms and shocked audiences with the sex acts it described and depicted, ultimately its message is reliably conservative. The only conceivable outcome of total sexual abandon is death. It's a message that would live on in Hollywood's erotic thrillers of the 80s and 90s. But Last Tango was nothing if not of its moment. In some sense, its release in the U.S. was Deep Throat Redux, except this time the sex sensation that you had to see in order to participate in the cultural conversation was as highbrow as it was vulgar. Like Deep Throat, Last Tango stayed in theaters for months, slowly accumulating a massive gross total for a film of its kind, despite the fact that it only hit the top of the box office charts once. And that was 16 weeks into its release. Both Deep Throat and Last Tango, as event films that showed sex in a graphic way, set new terms for a public conversation about private behavior. They could also have more intimate impact. Linda Williams wrote that Last Tango, quote, forced my partner and me to recognize that the new intensity of passion we experienced after seeing it had something to do with the film. In other words, it turned them on. If taking a date to a movie could result in better or more novel sex, who wouldn't want to go see that movie? In that sense, Last Tango showed that sexually explicit narratives could give potential ticket buyers new reasons to go to the movies. Of course, not everything in either movie would work as an aphrodisiac for every viewer or for every participant. After the break, the female stars of both Deep Throat and Last Tango reveal that these sexual spectacles that changed the world were made without their full consent. Deep Throat made Linda Lovelace an international celebrity. She rode the wave for a while before leaving her husband-slash-manager Chuck Trainer and leaving adult films behind. But she struggled to make a living or any kind of new life away from Deep Throat. When the federal government decided to prosecute Deep Throat in 1976, Linda was able to make an immunity deal to evade prosecution but that meant she had to be available to testify when they tried to put Deep Throat on trial. There were two main targets of this prosecution, the mob-connected Pereno family, which had funded Deep Throat, pocketed most of the profits, started a legit Hollywood distribution company called Bryanston Pictures, and went on to distribute Texas Chainsaw Massacre and Return of the Dragon, 
and Harry Reams, the male star of Deep Throat, as well as the following year's porno blockbuster, The Devil in Miss Jones. The federal prosecution of Deep Throat moved some of the Hollywood types who had gone to see the film, and some who hadn't, to align themselves with the cause. Jack Nicholson and Warren Beatty reportedly contributed to Reams's legal defense. Tony Bill, who had won the Best Picture Oscar two years earlier for The Sting, agreed to testify on Deep Throat's behalf. These guys didn't get involved because they loved Deep Throat so much. They saw this as a First Amendment issue and believed that if the feds were allowed to sue an actor or film producers of porn, the slope protecting the actors and producers of non-porn films from government censorship would become very slippery. In the end, eight men involved with the production or distribution of Deep Throat were convicted of obscenity, including Reams, but his conviction was overturned. The feds kept Loveless on call, but never actually called her to testify. None of Deep Throat's massive profits had gone to Linda. She tried to make a living capitalizing on her notoriety as the Deep Throat Girl. She made a couple of non-porn movies. She flopped on stage in Vegas. But by the end of the 70s, Linda and her second husband and two kids were living in extreme poverty. In early 1980, Loveless published a book called Ordeal, in which she revealed that her former husband, Chuck Trainer had forced her to make Deep Throat after having already forced her into prostitution and other porn films, including one in which she had sex with a dog. Nothing traumatized Linda as much as the bestiality, but other harrowing experiences she details include the first time her husband pimped her out, when according to Linda, he forced her at gunpoint to service five men simultaneously, the beating trainer gave Linda after the first day of shooting Deep Throat, which left bruises visible in the film. And the Deep Throating trainer forced Linda to offer to Al Goldstein, editor of Screw Magazine and thus Deep Throat's most important critic. For what it's worth, Goldstein later claimed he didn't enjoy being Deep Throated by the star of Deep Throat. Quote, it seemed so hostile. I felt very alienated. I left there feeling sad. Trainer denied that any of his treatment of Linda qualified as abuse. He claimed that Linda had been a willing participant in everything, and she was now twisting the narrative to sell books. Incredibly, he made no excuses for his physical violence. He said, I've always tried to deal with people two ways. I talk to them as long as I think I can talk to them, and then I hit them. With Linda, if she and I got into a hassle, it wouldn't be beneath me to backhand her or bend her over my knee and beat her ass. She dug it, you know? The fact that Loveless left Trainer as soon as she had the opportunity to suggests that she did not actually dig it. With Linda gone, Trainer immediately hooked up with the next big 70s porn star, Marilyn Chambers, whose film Behind the Green Door would open six months after Deep Throat. Chambers, a former model whose face had been used to sell soap, would try at a legitimate Hollywood career with Trainer as her manager. She was considered for parts in Goin' South, directed by Jack Nicholson, and Hardcore, directed by Paul Schrader. She claimed that Schrader told her that she looked too wholesome to convincingly play a porn star. She was chosen by David Cronenberg to star in his 1977 film, Rabid, but by 1980, she had returned to porn. She was headed in the opposite direction of the culture. In the July 1980 issue of Playboy, film critic Bruce Williamson declared that he would no longer feel obligated to review porn because, quote, the cream of the current crop would seldom merit more than a single bunny icon. Porno chic is all but dead. The future of porn was endangered by more than the declining quality of product. 
In their February 1980 issue, Playboy had published a reported rebuttal to anti-porn feminists who were trying to protest out of existence not just hardcore porn, but also softcore magazines like Playboy. Those feminists had embraced as their figurehead the original poster girl of porno chic, Linda Lovelace. Linda Lovelace would say she had never heard of feminism while she was making porn, although she does write an ordeal about another sex worker who had suggested she read Germaine Greer's The Female Eunuch. By the time Lovelace released Ordeal, a segment of the feminist movement, including stars like Gloria Steinem and Andrea Dworkin, had taken an orthodox stance against all pornography. The idea that women might be able to choose to do what they wanted to do with their own bodies didn't extend from the abortion debate to the porn debate. And Linda Lovelace's experience gave a group called Women Against Pornography a cudgel to hammer home the idea that all pornography was akin to sex slavery. Women Against Pornography was a New York-based group of radical feminists formed in the wake of results achieved by another group, Women Against Violence Against Women, founded in Los Angeles in 1976 by Marsha Womangold, who would later notoriously fire a rifle into a Harvard Square bookstore to protest the sale of magazines like Playboy and Penthouse. Initially, her methods were less violent. She used flyers and pamphlets to stop the release of a film called Snuff, which falsely purported to show the actual rape and murder of a pregnant woman. Womangold's group achieved a bigger coup when they defaced a Sunset Strip billboard for the Rolling Stones album Black and Blue. The billboard featured model Anita Russell tied up with rope and made up as though bruised, her legs spread around a gatefold of the black and blue LP. In big letters, scrawled as if in lipstick, the billboard proclaimed, I'm black and blue from the Rolling Stones and I love it. Women Against Violence Against Women used blood red paint to brandish the billboard with the words, this is a crime against women. As soon as Woman Gold's group announced a press conference to discuss their position, the Stones record company, which was run by David Geffen, took down the billboard and removed the bondage imagery from the ad campaign. Andrea Dworkin had tried unsuccessfully to campaign against snuff in New York, but after the Los Angeles group's tangible results, on the East Coast, Dworkin and compatriots like Susan Brownmiller and Adrian Rich were emboldened to form Women Against Pornography. After Gloria Steinem saw Loveless talking about her experiences on The Phil Donahue Show, she wrote about Loveless and her book in Ms. Magazine. Women Against Pornography, which had been attacking the sale and exhibition of pornography in Times Square, subsequently rallied around Loveless and, in her mind, exploited her as the face of their mission. When I look back at all the feminists and women against pornography, I kind of feel they used me too, Linda later said. Financially, they've never helped me out, but I know they made a few bucks off me, just like everybody else. Deep Throat's life as a blockbuster film, followed by its recasting as a document of rape, followed by Lovelace's own embrace of and subsequent dissolution with feminism, offers a kind of perfect nutshell encapsulation of a central lie of the sexual revolution, which held that a new repertoire of sexual behaviors and standards of normalcy that played to male desire were actually gaining currency because women wanted them. It's true that women benefited from the birth control pill, which allowed them to experiment sexually outside of marriage. But real women do not have clitorises in their throats. Deep Throat popularized a sexual act that, in real life, literally requires a woman to get on her knees before a man to perform labor in order to produce his pleasure while she is choking. And it framed this as an act that would make her orgasm with no additional labor on the part of the man. The sexual revolution was billed as a liberation for women, 
But when it came to actually having sex, so many women were still expected to be servile to male desire and power. And yet, the feminist response to this offered no real practical solutions that most real women could adopt and risked alienating the women who did actually take pleasure in new sexual freedoms. Last Tango in Paris was in part about the more complicated-than-ever power dynamics between men and women, and between young people growing up in a post-sexual revolution world, and an older generation that wanted to indulge in free love, but remained psychologically trapped by the past. But this film, too, ended up embodying the dark side of how this revolution emboldened men to coerce women into doing things they didn't want to do. Where Deep Throat showed one sexual act never before seen on mainstream movie screens, fellatio, Last Tango's most famous moment would become the so-called butter scene in which Paul surprises Jean with anal intercourse. This would result in Last Tango's most uncomfortable parallel to Deep Throat, just as Loveless would later reveal that she wasn't a willing participant in any of the sex she filmed. Maria Schneider, who was 20 when Last Tango was made, later revealed that the simulated sex of the butter scene wasn't scripted, and she didn't know what Brando was going to do until just before he did it, which meant that she didn't have time to choose whether or not to consent, if she even understood that saying no was an option. In 2007, at the age of 55, she gave a rare interview which had the effect of completely recasting how many people saw the film. Of the butter scene, Schneider said, quote, I felt humiliated, and to be honest, I felt a little raped, both by Marlon and by Bertolucci. After the scene, Marlon didn't console me or apologize. Thankfully, there was just one take. She added, I should have called my agent or had my lawyer come to the set because you can't force someone to do something that isn't in the script. But at the time, I didn't know that. Bertolucci acknowledged, at least as far back as the 90s, that the idea of using butter was an improv that Brando thought of while eating breakfast on the day of shooting. Bertolucci said it reminded him of Georges Bataille's The Story of the Eye, in which both milk and eggs are used in sex play. In 2013, Bertolucci claimed that the scene had been in the script, but he and Brando did not tell Schneider how they were planning to shoot it. Quote, because I wanted her reaction as a girl, not as an actress. I wanted her to react humiliated. In the immediate aftermath of Last Tango's release, Schneider, like Loveless, did a wealth of press, partially because Brando refused to do interviews to support the film. Unmedia trained and unselfconscious, she presented herself as a sexual libertine, talking about her affairs with men and women, and stating that anyone who referred to Last Tango as pornographic must be sick. But later, it would seem like she had been speaking out of Stockholm Syndrome. Schneider would ultimately blame her years of drug addiction on the experience of making Last Tango, on becoming massively and instantly famous for it, and having to constantly answer for the sex scenes she participated in. Like Linda Lovelace's experience with Deep Throat, Schneider would never do anything to erase or complicate the world's initial experience of her in Last Tango. Except for talk about how she felt that her participation in that landmark of sexual liberation actually stripped her of agency. In previous seasons of this podcast, We've talked about how two of the biggest blockbusters of the 20th century, The Birth of a Nation and Gone with the Wind, collectively imprinted on the film industry that the combination of epic, innovative filmmaking and nostalgia for slavery would be a sure bet for box office profits. Similarly, the one-two punch of Deep Throat and Last Tango taught Hollywood that people would go to the movies to see sexual taboos broken. 
if movies had always been to some extent or another both a magic portal and a screen on which viewers could bounce off their sexual fantasies, now movies could be more directly instructional and could function as a kind of aphrodisiac, even when not portraying hardcore imagery. Most producers and studios didn't want to go as far as either of those films went because they didn't want to risk lawsuits or criminal charges or government censorship. And they didn't fundamentally want to start a revolution. But they could find safer ways to riff on the idea of sexual danger while still, most of the time, reaffirming the patriarchal status quo and use the idea that they were flouting sexual mores to make a lot of money. We will explore how that went starting next week when we jump ahead to 1979. Join us then, won't you? Thanks for listening to You Must Remember This. The show is written, produced, and narrated by Karina Longworth. That's me. This season is edited and mixed by Evan Viola. Our research and production assistant is Lindsay D. Schoenholtz. Our social media assistant is Brendan Whalen. And our logo was designed by Teddy Blakes. If you like the show, please tell anyone you can any way that you can. You can follow us on Twitter at RememberThisPod, and we're on Facebook and Instagram, too. And if you go to our website, you must remember thispodcast.com. You can find show notes for this and every other episode, which include lists of our sources and much more. At the website, you can also find merch like hats, t-shirts, and our special limited edition Dead Blondes coloring book. At patreon.com slash Karina Longworth, you can support the podcast, get lots of bonus You Must Remember This content, including scripts or transcripts of our full archive, and some glimpses into other aspects of my life. Proceeds from Patreon go to help pay all the people who work on the show named above. Finally, subscribing or rating and reviewing the show on Apple Podcasts can really help other people find it. So if you want to spread the word, that's a great way to do it. We'll be back next week with an all-new tale from the secret and or forgotten histories of Hollywood's first century. Join us then, won't you? Good night. You know that science solves crimes. Forensic science is exciting, challenging, and most of all, rewarding work. But there is a shortage of qualified individuals in this field. Hi, I'm Terry with Loyola University, Maryland's Forensic Science Department. Loyola is one of the only colleges in the country offering advanced degrees in forensic pattern analysis and biological forensics. Our courses, taught by forensic experts, feature hands-on training and small class sizes. They are based on real crime scene and forensic examiner training programs to ensure you are ready to make a difference. Our programs are open to students from a variety of academic backgrounds because we believe everyone can contribute to solving crimes. So what are you waiting for? Discover the excitement of forensic science at Loyola University, Maryland. Visit loyola.edu forward slash forensic for more information. That's loyola.edu forward slash forensic because you are ready to make a difference. Join one of Loyola University, Maryland's forensic science programs today.